Well, hey, Convergent Church, it's a joy to gather with you this morning. In a world that feels increasingly broken, increasingly divided, it does my soul well to spend my Sundays with you. As we sing songs that remind our hearts of the promises of God, where we open up our Bibles to grow in our walk with Jesus together, where we partake in communion to be reminded of the gospel, where we bear one another's burdens and encourage one another to continue pressing on. And I hope that feeling is mutual. If you're joining us for your first time, welcome. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Convergent Church, and we're so grateful to have you with us this morning. And if you don't know much about us, it's simple, really. We'd say that we're a group of ordinary people with real struggles, real shortcomings, and real sin who believe in an extraordinary God who sent his son Jesus to this earth to bring us life, healing, and reconciliation. And if you haven't experienced him, it's our hope and prayer that you will experience him today. Well, it would seem like winter is making its way in, contrary to the 70-degree weather uh, that we experienced this time last week when my neighbor was out mowing his lawn in his short shorts. On Thursday evening, we had our first snow of the year. And it only took about 30 minutes to see roadside ditches filled with cars. The first snow of the year is always a, a very nostalgic thing for me. Anyone else? Ah, yes, Christmas is in the air. Some of you may be thinking, well, that's not exactly what I had in mind, but let me tell you about it. Sarah and I ran into Jake and Amanda Oliver at Walmart on Friday evening. Jake works a first shift job over in Lansing and was talking about how horrible the roads were with the first snow, which flooded my mind with memories. Because you see, Jake and I have been close friends since preschool. So inevitably, many of my quote unquote first snow memories are with him. But the most noteworthy ones are the ones that came after I got my driver's license. I'm talking 17, 18, 19 years old. We've driven across the state through blizzards to play rock and roll shows back when we were in a band. We've driven four-wheel drive SUVs up snowbanks and parking lots. And yes, we've even been that car that you've passed in the ditch. Honestly, the more I think about it, I'm pretty sure I was the one driving every time. So I guess that would make me the bad influence and Jake the reluctant participant. Jake, you really should make better decisions and keep better company. <laughs> but the other day when Jake was talking about how bad the roads were on the way to Lansing, it immediately gave me a flashback to the first snow of November in 2011 when we made our way to Lansing together. I had found a really good deal on this guitar amp over in Lansing. It's one I'd been wanting for a while. And there was a snowstorm that was supposed to be coming in. My dad warned me that I probably shouldn't go because the weather was getting really bad. My concern, though, was, well, what if somebody else snatches this thing up before I'm able to buy it? I had my heart set on getting this piece of gear. And we're Michiganders, right? How bad could it really be? There's nothing new under the sun. So I went and picked up Jake to tag along, and we set out for Lansing. And let me tell you, it was bad. Jake, have you ever been more afraid for your life? <laughs> we, we almost died no less than three times. One involved a, a semi-truck almost t 
T-boning us as we slid into a parallel position on the freeway uh, and proceeded to get stuck in the snow. At one point, we even stopped at McDonald's and began putting our money together to see if we had enough cash for a hotel room in Lansing until the snowstorm blew over so we didn't have to risk the drive back in snowpocalypse. But we got the amp, we decided to drive home, and ultimately crossed over into Owasso city limits unscathed. Success. Now, what I'd love to tell you is that we did the responsible thing and promptly returned home. But is that what we did, Jake? (laughs) Heck no, it isn't. I was feeling confident. After all, the scorecard would read, Dan and Jake won, Mother Nature, zero. I was feeling confident. So I drove us to our place of employment, the subway on M21 here in town. Yes, we were sandwich artists at the time. No, we did not go to school for it. And upon arrival, I began to do donut after donut in the empty powder-coated parking lot so as to gloat in the face of the storm and my coworkers who had to work that night alike. Just picture it being like Need for Speed, uh, Tokyo Drift, if uh, you've ever seen the movie. It was all fun and games. That is until I saw a state trooper light us up. But he was still on M21. We were already in the parking lot. I thought to myself, we had an advantage. So I thought I, thought I would just kind of drift my way around to the back of the store, park and run in the back entrance of the store before he could catch up to us. But no sooner than we got out of the car, he got us. And he wasn't messing around either. He was stern, drilling me one question after the other. What the heck do you think you're doing out here? Or at least least that's the PG version. He continued, where are you coming from? Where are you going? License and registration. Wait, whose car is this? Well, officer, you see, uh, it is in fact my mom's. (laughs) This really lit a fire under him. He proceeds to ask me how my mother would feel about my quote-unquote reckless driving, and I was certain, absolutely certain, that I was going to get a big, fat ticket. Because you see, this definitely wasn't the first time Jake and I had been pulled over together. And sadly, it wouldn't be the last. Now, those are stories that we can share another time. You really should do better, Jake. Uh, But to my surprise, the officer let us off with a warning. Instead of giving me the reckless driving ticket I probably deserved, he chose to extend grace to me. He withheld the punishment I probably deserved and sent us on our way. Now, the question I'd like to begin with this morning is, can you think of a time when someone extended mercy to you? Can you think of a time when someone extended mercy to you? How did you feel when you received that mercy? How did it feel when you didn't receive receive the, the vengeance or the punishment that you deserved? What kind of relief did it bring to you? If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter five. This morning, we're gonna continue on in a sermon series we've titled Blessed, A Journey Through the Beatitudes. On a hillside in northern Israel, Jesus preached what we've come to know as the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached. And he began the sermon with eight Beatitudes, these eight signs of supreme blessedness, each one beginning with the statement, blessed are the fill in the blank. 
Blessed translating as happy, blissful, fortunate, to be envied. What comes to mind when you think blessing? A few weeks ago, I mentioned thinking about which Instagram photos would get the hashtag blessed. What do you consider a blessing to be? Is it time with family, money, vacation, a new car, maybe NBA league pass? You see, none of these things are bad things, but most often we feel hashtag blessed when we procure these sorts of material gains. And while they can be great in this life, we can't take them with us into the next, can we? Jesus is getting at something much deeper here, and the blessings he describes have an eternal weight and significance. So thus far, we've seen uh, in Matthew 5, verse 3, it said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Spiritual poverty, grief, mildness, hunger, and thirst. Not only are these not Instagram-worthy things, if we're honest, at first glance, these don't even seem like desirable things at all. But as we've seen the last few weeks, these blessings have great eternal worth for the believer. Now, I'm not going to expound on those any further. If you're just jumping in with us and are a bit bewildered by these statements, head over to our website, convergentowasso.com, and you can stream those sermons. They're also on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, and so on. But that brings us to our text this morning, Matthew 5, verse 7, which reads, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Just nine words. This this is the shortest of all the Beatitudes. And two of the words are one and the same. So to get us started, I'd like to ask the question, what is the mercy that Jesus is speaking of? For us to get to the heart of this text, it's essential that we understand what is meant by mercy. This word mercy is actually used two different ways throughout the Bible. The first one is this. It means having compassion for the less fortunate. This is what we'd call merciful grace. It's something we often see Jesus demonstrate towards others throughout his earthly ministry. In Matthew 9, 27, two blind men followed Jesus saying, have mercy on us, son of David. In Matthew 15, 22, a mother of a girl who was oppressed by a demon came to Jesus crying, have mercy on me, O Lord. In Luke 17, 12 through 13, Jesus entered a village only to be met by 10 lepers who pleaded with him, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. These were all people who had incurable conditions and who were in their despair and cried out to Jesus to have compassion upon them, to alleviate their suffering, to heal them which he did time and time again. But then there's another kind of mercy that we see in the Bible, and that's this. 
the pardoning of wrongdoing. Micah 7, 18 through 19 says this, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And then in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, we read, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. And lastly, Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 5, where we read, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So what kind of mercy does Jesus have in view here in Matthew 5, 7? Well, we can readily see that both are consistent with the character of God. And thus, both are things that we're called to walk in towards others as Christians. Some scholars would say that the focus here is upon both kinds of mercy, that is, showing compassion to those in need and pardoning the wrongdoing of others. While others would say that based on the immediate context, there's a narrower focus on the latter use of the word, and the focus is more on pardoning. And that's kind of where I'm prone to land. Uh, but as a, as a young Christian, I remember often using grace and mercy sort of interchangeably. I could use them in a sentence, but I didn't really know what the difference was. So allow me to define those terms for us before we move forward. Grace equals unmerited favor, receiving good things that you've done nothing to earn, that you don't deserve. Mercy, on the other hand, equals judgment withheld. Mercy is not receiving the punishment that you deserve. Mercy is forgiveness. Does that make sense? Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. Mercy is not receiving the punishment that you do deserve. So if you're asking, yeah, 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 yeah. What are you trying to get at here? Just make it plain for me. Get to your point. This reality is saying, blessed are those who freely pardon their aggressors. Or, or blessed are those who freely forgive those who have sinned against them. Now, that's a heavy word. Has anyone ever felt blessed when withholding the wrath they know someone else had earned for their sin against them? I think if we're honest with ourselves, if we had written this, it would have read something more like, blessed are those who receive a sincere, heartfelt apology in sevenfold restitution. But unfortunately, that's not what it says, is it? No, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who freely pardon their aggressors, for they themselves will be pardoned. And blessed are those who freely forgive those who have sinned against them, for they will be forgiven. 
The blessing is that we will receive the mercy of God in proportion to the mercy we extend to others. Now, I hope some of your ears perked up at that. Is anyone going, hold up a minute. I've got some questions. Some of you may be thinking to yourselves, wait a minute, Pastor Dan, that sounds a lot more like karma than gospel. So is it karma or is it gospel? Are you saying that I'm going to get what I've given? Are you saying that what goes around comes around? It does seem quite antithetical to what you typically hear us preach here at Convergent, doesn't it? This year, we spent 20 weeks preaching through Paul's letter to the Galatians. And what did we hear week after week, sermon after sermon? Mankind is justified by what? Mankind is justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works of the law. That is to say, no one gets into heaven based upon their good works. It's not about what you've done, but what Jesus has done for you. There's not enough good in ourselves to save ourselves. So which is it, karma or gospel? My friends, there is no such thing as karma. You won't find that word anywhere in the Bible. Karma is a doctrine that has its roots in Hinduism and Buddhism. And the gospel that we believe knows nothing of it. Here's the deal. You and I, on our best day, still fall short. Even our best attempts at working towards the greater good of others is still tainted by pride. It's tainted by self-interest. That is to say, it's tainted by our sin. There is but one thing that gives us right standing before God, and that's faith in the finished work of Jesus. Jesus came to this earth as our substitute and paid the price of our ransom from sin with his own life. He nailed all of your sin and all of my sin to the cross. Faith in this truth is your only rescue from your sin and the hell you deserve. It's the only means of reconciliation to God and to receive eternal life. We cannot earn the mercy of God. So what are we to deduce from this beatitude then? After all, it it says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. This begs the question, when? When do we receive God's mercy? Doesn't this beatitude say that we receive mercy when we're merciful? Well, let's revisit Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 5 again. What does it say? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Here we see that God's mercy is actually the prerequisite to our salvation. God had love and mercy for you before you even placed your faith in Jesus, when you were dead in your trespasses. 
It's because of his love and mercy towards you that he made you alive with Christ. And take note that this is in the past tense. It says he made you alive. He withheld the punishment you deserved and gave you the unmerited favor of salvation that you didn't deserve. Let's also consider Titus 3, verses 2 through 8. It explains that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to what? According to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are excellent and profitable for people. Again, here we see that our position before God isn't determined by our performance, but by his mercy towards us. And take note again, how this also is in the past tense. He saved us. He justified us. Not because of works done by our own righteousness, but according to what? His mercy. And it says he justified us by grace that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is to say, our salvation has not yet been totally realized. Our faith has yet to become sight. We find ourselves presently tucked right in between the commencement of God's mercy to us. It's already begun. It's already been extended to us. And it's final consummation at the day of judgment when our salvation is fully realized, when our faith becomes sight. Paul tells Titus, in light of this mercy they have received, they should devote themselves to good works, like extending mercy to others because these things are excellent and profitable for people. So your extension of mercy to others isn't to earn salvation. Rather, it's your faith's mark of authenticity. You see, we don't give mercy to get mercy. We give mercy because we've already received mercy. Our giving of mercy to others is what substantiates that. And on the last day, we can have confidence that we will not be cast out, but that our mercy will be eternally consummated. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9, says it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, we've talked a lot about the word mercy this morning, but what about the word merciful? This is one of only two places that we see this word merciful used in the entire Bible. Here it's speaking of what we ought to be. The only other place it's used is in Hebrews 2.17, and there we read this. Therefore he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. God is calling us to become as he is. Jesus is merciful, and so his followers must be too. As we have received God's mercy and expectantly await its perfect realization on the day of judgment, God invites us into his ministry of mercy. As those whom he has given mercy to, we are tasked with now being agents who in turn extend his mercy to others. This is our blessing. God not only gives us mercy, but has now placed the calling upon us to be ambassadors who give mercy just as we have received it. In Luke 6, 35 through 36, we're told, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This calls to mind Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant. Is anyone familiar with it? Turn with me to Matthew 18 as we round out things this morning. Matthew 18. And allow me to set the scene for us. Jesus had just instructed his disciples on how to handle unrepentant sin in the church. This is what's commonly known as church discipline. So Jesus tells his disciples, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him a sin between you and him alone. If he refuses you, bring two or three witnesses. If they refuse the witnesses, then take it before the church. And if they refuse the church, then let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. That is to say, let them be to you as an unbeliever. And this is where Peter chirps up. Peter's always the inquisitive one, isn't he? (laughs) And this is what Peter says. Lord, how often... Will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In other words, how often do I have to forgive? And then he proceeds to say, as many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, 
I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. This is a number of perfection. He's saying that there is no end to the amount of forgiveness that you're to extend to your brother. And this is where we pick up in verse 23. It says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him of the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Here we see this. This unforgiving servant owed his master literally millions and millions of dollars in current U.S. currency. Now, contrastingly, his fellow servant owed him one day's worth of wages. This is the equivalent of 16 cents a day. (laughs) He'd been forgiven of millions and millions of dollars, but now wants to hold somebody else accountable for a pitily 16 cents. The reality is this. We are the unforgiving servant, and God is the kind master. And hear this. God has forgiven you of a much greater debt than anyone else could ever owe you. God has given you greater mercy than you could ever give to somebody else. So as we wrap up this morning, the question I'd like to pose is this. As someone who has received the mercy of God, who do you need to give mercy to? I'd like for you to take a moment to pray about this. Ask God who you need to extend mercy to, who you need to forgive, who you need to pardon of their wrongdoing against you. If you're having trouble coming up with someone, it's probably that person who's hurt you really bad. It's probably that person that you can't even fathom forgiving. Whoever that may be, will you write their name down? 
If you don't have a pen or paper, make a note on your phone and put their name there. And if you're like me, you're probably like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to do anything with it. I don't know if I can ever have mercy on this Percy person. Write it down. But for others, you may be asking yourself, okay, I've written this name down, but where do I start? How can I possibly forgive this person who's hurt me so badly? I feel a weight of conviction that I need to, but I don't, I don't know where to start. So I'd like to give you some instructions on where you can start. Step number one is this. Believe the gospel. Believe the gospel, because you can't give God's mercy to another if you haven't yet received his mercy. So if you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sin, I would ask you, will you believe this gospel? But for those of you who've placed your faith in Jesus, here's where it starts. Remember the gospel. Meditate upon it daily. Here's the reality. We have identity amnesia. Some of us in this room have been walking with the Lord for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, 60 years. And as time passes, it's easy to forget where God has brought us from. We need to remember the gospel because when we remember our helpless state before God, apart from him reaching down to us and first extending mercy to us, it makes it a lot easier to give mercy to others out of the overflow of what we've, of what we've received, out of the overflow of what God has given to us. The second step is this. Pray and ask God to heal your heart and to help you to forgive a few things I'd like to point out here. Number one, he will listen. 1 John 5, 14 says this. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. God's will is that you would give mercy to others. He will hear your pleas for help. Not only that, he will help you. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Of which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Pray and ask God to heal your heart and help you to forgive because he will listen and he will help you but even more than that, he'll exceed your expectations. Ephesians 3.20 says it this way. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we seek or think according to the power at work within us. Now the third thing you can do is this. 
pray for your enemies. Matthew 5, 43 through 45. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Here's the deal, guys. It's, it's impossible to hate someone you pray for. I've tried. <laughs> it's a futile effort. God's spirit will soften your heart and give you compassion towards those who have sinned against you in such a measure that you never thought possible. Remember the gospel. Pray and ask God to heal your heart and help you to forgive. Pray for your enemies. And lastly, bless those who persecute you. Romans 12, verse 14, and then verses 17 through 21. This is actually the, 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 the header here. <laughs> it says marks of a true Christian. And here's what it says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me pray these things over you.